A Democrat back in the White House already clashing with Texas Republicans. It feels like the good old days. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, editor at QuorumReport.com, and joining me to help you understand exactly what happened this week. He'll help me understand it, too. I'm still working it all out in my head. Houston Chronicle political writer Jeremy Wallace. How are you, sir? Doing all right. How are you? I'm okay. This uh, week is one of those where there's so many things happening that I have to put it all in some order, prioritize it. Um, and I'm just going to start with the fact that it feels a lot like partisan politics again in a way that's um, sort of pure rather than sort of muddied by all these you know, over-the-top personalities and uh, angry mobs and all of that. Instead, substantive arguments about real issues, yeah. right? I mean, look, wherever you are on these things, they're important and certainly important to Texas. Um, immigration, for example, Joe Biden's first day as president. And it is amazing to think about when, they, as soon as they take the oath of office at noon on January 20th, they immediately have broad sweeping power to do different stuff, right? And Biden took action on some things that are very important to us, immigration, energy, et cetera. On immigration, I saw where the attorney general, Ken Paxton here in Texas, was already saying if they go forward with what they want to do, as far as uh, suspending some deportations at the federal level, uh, Texas is going to sue them. Well, feels like the good old days. Do you remember when Governor Abbott was Attorney General Abbott? What he would say was uh, that his job was to go to work, get up in the morning, go to work, sue President Obama at the time. And then just go home. So yeah. I think Paxton may go to a version of that once again. I saw where the quote unquote conservative Texas uh, Public Policy Foundation, the TPPF, they were talking about how they were getting ready to sue the Biden administration. And they didn't necessarily even know what about. They were just gearing up to to do it. Right. Um, on energy, one of the first things that uh, Biden did was sign a piece of paper that got rid of the permit for the Keystone XL pipeline. Let's be clear about this, Jeremy. The Keystone XL, how long has this been going on? Forever. I remember they were talking about it during the Obama administration. Oh, yeah. More than Early, 10 years. Yeah, it, you can find records on the Keystone being talked about during the Bush administration, you know, right. W. Bush. And so, yeah, it's a long history. It really kind of picked up in the Obama era. Mm -hmm. They shut it down. Uh, Trump, you know, got it back going. And right. here we are today. And we still don't have a Keystone XL pipeline. This is a pipeline that would take the crude that they extract from tar sands in Canada. And tar sands crude is the nastiest crude, right? Yep. This, this is um, heavy, heavy stuff uh, and difficult to refine, but we can do it in Texas. Um, you have Republicans like uh, Michael McCall, congressman from Austin. His district stretches from here to Houston. He says that getting rid of Keystone XL is the wrong move. In Houston, I have a lot of um, people in the energy industry that uh, – you know, they, they, you know, we want to protect their jobs. Congressman McCall talked to KPRC Channel 2 in Houston. We're going to have a civilized um, um, discussion about that, but I, I think you're going to see some, uh, obviously from Texas 
uh, a lot of disagreement on that issue. Plenty of disagreements. Although in Texas, I don't know that there's a lot of economic impact for us here. Let's be clear about this when it comes to Keystone XL. Um, the deal with the pipeline is that the real uh, economic beneficiary is where the pipeline starts, not where it ends. When, when you're trying to get rid of a, a commodity, when you're trying to sell it, this is how you do that, right? You sell it uh, by moving it through either trucks or a pipeline, or if it's you know electricity, it's through you know the transmission lines, whatever. Um, and with this pipeline, where it starts is in Canada. So the real losers on this are the Canadians. Yes. In te- am I right? In Texas, uh, we get crude from all over the world uh, along the Gulf Coast. Uh, what places like uh, Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, etc. Uh, I saw where Dan Crenshaw had tweeted out that the real winners here would be the Russian oligarchs. He may actually have a little bit of an argument with that, uh, but it's not that we're the losers and the Russians are the winners. It's that Russia might win a little bit here, but but Canada would really be the real loser. In Texas, you're not going to see a lot of jobs go away because the Keystone XL is not being approved. And I would add one other thing, Jeremy, this has been argued about for so long. As you said, they've been talking about it going back to the Bush administration. If you talk to industry insiders, the business of oil and gas has kind of moved on from this. This is such a political thing. Um, the, the business guys would say there's so much uncertainty about that particular project. We just can't count on that. So they're basically doing other things in the meantime to you know, keep their business going. Well, and, and the debate of how many jobs this really costs is kind of, you know, it's a really muddy debate to begin with. You know, the obviously the, the, the trans-Canadian folks who are doing the pipeline uh, say, oh, this is a big job benefit for the U.S. And they talk about $40,000, know, 40,000 jobs being created. But most of those are indirect jobs. In terms of direct jobs, some of the reports out there with the State Department shows that there might be 15 jobs entirely created in the United States of America. You know, there's some temporary jobs, you know, for construction of the pipeline, including in Texas, because they are going to have to extend pipelines through much of East Texas to get to Houston and to Beaumont, where, you know, they would be, you know, refining this product. But, you know, these are not, you know, long-term Texas jobs we're talking about. They certainly benefit the refineries and, you know, in those two areas who obviously employ workers. But, you know, this is not some, you know, Texas has suddenly lost, you know, millions of, you know, pipeline related jobs, you know, so uh, a little bit of a twist there, but certainly there's some indirect jobs in the oil industry that certainly are affected. Yeah. John Cornyn, our senior senator said the biggest losers from this decision are the energy workers who stood to benefit from the pipeline. There's no doubt our energy industry has already suffered during the pandemic and President Biden's answer is to kick the industry further down the well on Quote, um, uh, you know, the the Biden administration's moves here are not insignificant when it comes to our economy. Um, That project, take that project and put it on the shelf. That's certainly what Biden did. Um, In a broader sense, we're moving away from, and I saw this uh, as part of CNN's uh, analysis of what uh, Biden is doing, just from the broad perspective of energy. He's taking us from the uh, all of the above way of doing energy and moving it toward green energy only or renewables only. Um, You remember during the Obama administration, there was a big push and Secretary Clinton, when she was running for president, had also talked about the idea that what we needed to do was move away from uh, crude, but not move away from natural gas. That natural gas would be, you know, sort of the bridge. It's certainly cleaner than crude oil and, and those sorts of fossil fuels. 
that that natural gas could be the bridge to where we want to go, which is to you know do more in the way of renewables. There are those who take issue with that, of course, and they say that natural gas is dirty enough, but it's certainly not crude oil or coal or any of that. Um, and at that time, you had folks like John Cornyn saying that he was also, and I think he would still say this, uh, that he was somebody who wanted to see that all of the above approach to energy. So it's something to watch closely moving forward, uh, Jeremy, for Texas, uh, because yeah. it doesn't, and here's, here's something else to add to that. It doesn't have to be bad for Texas, but it will certainly be a shift because we do also lead the country in renewables in a lot of ways when it comes to wind and solar. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't produce nearly the income uh, for the state of Texas, obviously, as oil and gas do. He's like, yeah, you know, oil and gas is you know has a finite you know capability, of course, but in Texas, it's still such a dominant piece of the economy. You can feel the nervousness, and you know, and, th- and this really goes back to what you were saying earlier. For Republicans, as bad as it is to see the entire you know, federal government now in the control of Democrats. The good news for the Texas Republicans, at least from a very political standpoint, is they now have an enemy and it's a public mm-hmm. policy. You know, this is so much easier to go after Biden for these moves on energy. Like, you know, one of the you know things he just did was uh, Biden did suspend federal oil and gas leasing for the next 60 days. That's going to yep. have another major impact. Mm-hmm. And so it's easier to go after Biden and the administration for what they're doing in D.C. versus what we've been seeing for the last four years where you're constantly trying to have to defend, you know, President Trump on, you know, putting in tariffs, you know, moving away from free trade, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and all those like areas where he was clearly going against the Republican grain of Texas, you know, yeah. like our guys now, it's just like, oh, just unroll the hatches and just bomb away. You know, Biden's killing our economy. Biden's, you know, leading to, you know, illegal immigration. So from a political standpoint, it's you know, you know, to not be able to govern, but at least still have a chance to have a platform for Texas Republicans, specifically on oil and gas, isn't going to be bad for them in some respects, as long as they can, you know, show that their defense is actually providing something in return for Texas. Like if they are able to slow down something, uh-huh. they can take that back to voters and say we stood against their attempts to wipe out our oil and gas industry. That's going to be where we shift now politically. Right. And that was something that was uh, particularly effective in South Texas, which you wrote about a lot, where they you know, they do rely a lot on uh, the oil and gas industry. Let's turn our attention to the pandemic. In just a second, I will ask you about where we are with the numbers in Texas, uh, Jeremy, because you've always got uh, your finger right on the pulse of all of that. But you know that big crowds and uh, people packed into small spaces, that's not a good idea during the pandemic, right? So why was it over the weekend we were seeing these pictures of this big concert in Houston? Listen to this. That is Bow Wow in concert. You a big Bow Wow fan? Not at all. No, not not at all. Um, People really crammed in there to see Bow Wow. Uh, He said, uh, Bow Wow said, that the mayor of Houston, Sylvester Turner, hates my guts after he packed him in. Turner said that he doesn't hate the guy, but that concerts like that are not allowed. Uh, You know that uh, Turner wasn't allowed or certainly wasn't invited to the governor's roundtable on coronavirus vaccine at Methodist Hospital. Now, why did they do this at Methodist Hospital? As you know, it's because it's one of the big hubs. Are they calling it a mega hub 
or what's the term they're using for that? Yeah, I think it's giant hubs where they can do, which basically they can do tens of thousands of vaccines uh, at Methodist Hospital in Houston. The governor says the state is making good progress on vaccinations in a pretty short period of time. The state has distributed 1,725,575 doses that have been shipped to providers. 1,358,678 of those doses have already been administered to Texans. And the governor said the federal government has promised to step up even more. On Sunday, Dr. Fauci said that we should be weeks, not months away, from getting additional vaccines. He talked about uh, the oncoming uh, probability of soon receiving vaccines from two new providers. One is Johnson & Johnson, and the other is AstraZeneca. Receiving those additional vaccines would massively increase the supplies that we have in Houston and across the entire state of Texas and being able to vaccinate far more people far more rapidly. Now, you would think in an effort like this, the big focus would be on cooperation, right, between federal, state, and local. We've talked about this throughout the entirety of the pandemic. It seems, Jeremy, that the Biden administration, uh, in their first moves on the pandemic, what they want to do is centralize the uh, command for all this to the response of the uh, disease, where it was more decentralized under President Trump. Trump's administration, basically on a lot of these issues, said it's up to the states to figure out how they're going to do that. Now, I think that uh, there's a good argument for both. Uh, In Texas, we saw that when the local governments were more in charge initially of dealing with shutting down different events, it was about a year ago now at this point uh, that you saw events like South by Southwest get shut down and the rodeo in Houston got shut down. These things that now would be super spreader events at the time. You remember, it seemed like overkill. Yeah, uh, People were thinking, man, if the idea that they're going to shut down South by Southwest, how much does that mean economically for the city of Austin and Texas? I think for the city, it's uh, a direct economic benefit of something like $300 million or something like that. I have to go back and look at the numbers, but it's, it's big, right? And that has economic impacts and ripples throughout the region and the state. Well, cooperation, the governor, working with the local folks, hmm. Not so much. Uh, He was asked, as I mentioned, why Sylvester Turner, the mayor of Houston, was not there with him at this roundtable in Houston. And the Harris County judge, Lena Hidalgo, what's up with that? Why are they not there for this deal? One of the reporters uh, pointed out that when he was in a Republican-controlled county, in Tarrant County, where there's a Republican mayor in Fort Worth, the mayor was there, as was the Republican county judge. So does it have anything to do with the fact that Hidalgo and Turner are Democrats instead of Republicans? Here's the answer that Abbott gave in that press conference. Yeah, for the rollout that we had the last week, uh, the purpose of that rollout uh, was to show the public what one of those centers looks like. The purpose today is different. The purpose today is to recognize not one of the leaders, but the leader in the state of Texas with regard to vaccines, with regard to antibody therapeutic drugs, and to use them as the example to talk to others. We spend multiple days every single week talking to the local officials, whether it be the local public health officials or the local officials themselves. Uh, maybe not a day goes by 
if it does, there's only one day that goes by without either Chief Kidd or somebody who works for Chief Kidd uh, or Dr. Hellerstadt or somebody who works for Dr. Hellerstadt uh, in constant communication uh, with those local officials, and that process will continue. But today is a day that we uh, celebrate and highlight uh, the role that Houston Methodist has played, and we urge others uh, to copy the example that Houston Methodist has set. The governor acting as if they, you know, can't do two things at once here, that, that they couldn't have local leadership there and also highlight uh, the great job that Houston Methodist has done. Jeremy, I think you pointed out that some eyebrows were raised when those two leaders were not invited to this roundtable. Yeah, it, it's interesting. You know, he was there, you know, and even in that, you know, that press conference, they you know, celebrate how well Harris County is doing in getting vaccinations out. It wasn't just, you know, Houston Methodist, but they were praising how well things are going in Houston and Harris County. Uh, Yet Abbott just can't be in that position to say, and I'd like to thank, you know, County Judge Lena Hildago and Houston Mayor Sylvester Turner for their cooperation. Imagine what that would do for both him and for those, you know, officials in Houston in terms of morale. Mm-hmm. You know, the public, you know, particularly right now, you know, craving some sort of bipartisanship on anything on earth, right? You know, that's why, you know, people are kind of looking at Biden, you know, will he be able to work with some Republicans? Can we just take the temperature down? Mm-hmm. Abbott had this great opportunity to say, despite partisan differences, you know, we are working with, you know, County Judge Lena Hildago, and I want to thank her for inviting us here today. You know, that's, that's all it took to kind of really, you know, bring that message home. But again, we've talked about before, Lena Hildago and Sylvester Turner are, you know, political enemies. You know, we don't know if they're going to be running against somebody in the future and they're, you know, Abbott Kiss can't risk throwing out compliments uh, to people who could be the thorn in the side of future Republicans. Right. And we're just in a different era. And it was not that long ago that you would have um, disasters happen in Southeast Texas. Uh, This is where they're very prone to hurricanes, of course, uh, right there on the Gulf Coast. And I remember uh, Bill White, then the mayor of Houston, appearing often with Rick Perry uh, as they were uh, in response mode after, uh, you know, hurricanes, big storms on the Gulf Coast, giving each other credit on different things, certainly not attacking each other about different things. Bill White later ran against Rick Perry, and I don't ever remember White bringing up any you know dereliction on the part of Rick Perry for his hurricane response, which he certainly – I was there and covered it. He certainly could have done that. There were certain yeah. things that the state could have been faster on, but I think we, that, was, uh, 2000, that was 2005 to 2010 is the time frame I'm thinking of, and in that time – they just didn't go there. But listen, but look at this headline that we have a quorum report right now, to your point. From policing to taxes and homelessness, local governments once again in the crosshairs, again at the Texas legislature, where you have Governor Abbott taking aim politically uh, at the cities of Houston, Dallas, uh, Harris County, Dallas County, uh, and Austin in particular. We'll get to that in a little bit. Austin and Travis County, always the target of Republican leadership uh, on a whole host of issues. Um, I think. And I, well, I wonder whether or not some of that will lessen a little bit. It does seem that during the Trump administration, the Republican ire directed at local governments uh, increased because they needed to have a political target, right? Yep. They, couldn't, they couldn't attack President Trump anymore when they had been attacking President Obama all the time. And then when it transitioned from Obama to Trump, there was a lot more of this uh, state Republican anger at the local officials who happened to be 
Democrats, at least in the big cities uh, in the big counties. Um, but now we're going back to a Democratic administration in Washington, and maybe more of the anger gets directed that way, and some of the anger toward the local governments lessens up. Or, but maybe, maybe not. Maybe they just keep firing in all directions. Yeah, exactly. You just, you know, again, it feels like you know we're set up for you know somebody who reaches across the aisle successfully and looks like a team, and not just like you know you know, mouthing it, you know, it's like somebody who's really acting to do it. It's going to get a lot of, you know, credit from, you know, maybe not the two partisan ends of the party, but for the vast majority of, you know, Texans, you know, who are in the middle, right. You know, they're going to see, you know, somebody like an, an Abbott, a Cornyn, a Ted Cruz, somebody who can reach across and work, you know, with the other side, you know, going back to your hurricane point, remember after hurricane Harvey, there was that one point where Sheila Jackson Lee and Ted Cruz were working together. And there, there was like this, you know, picture of them on the same side, you know, and, yeah. and that kind of gives that, that, you know, that sense of uh, uh, that the government, all partisans politics aside is going to still be working to deal with this emergency. You know, we just don't have that right now. And like, who's going to be able to do that? Is it going to be left up to the, you know, Biden to make that, you know, move, you know, and try to show that, you know, only him, or are there going to be others who can like demonstrate that? And that, you know, cause, you know, it's funny cause you look back and like, you know, I know I can go back through you know, congressional records and find <laughs> John Cornyn working with then Senator Joe Biden on some legislation, right? Sure. We know there's somewhere out there. Of course. Uh, there has to be some bills they work together on. Uh, and so like, will we get back into that? You know, it's like, and you know, hopefully during this crisis, somebody's going to figure that out. At the federal level, the air seems to be going out of the energy uh, around expelling Ted Cruz from the Senate. Uh, there has been a lot of discussion about that ever since the riot in Washington, but that doesn't mean that some groups aren't still fired up about it. Uh, this video is uh, being promoted by a Democratic group now. Uh, listen to this. It's been viewed on YouTube and on Twitter, uh, actually viewed on Twitter, more than three million times so far. The 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution is clear. No American who is engaged in insurrection or rebellion is allowed to hold office. While seven Republican senators voted to overturn the 2020 election, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley share the most blame for firing up the violent mob of Trump supporters that attacked the U.S. Capitol and killed five people. But I mean, come on, what did Cruz actually say to incite something like that? We will not Okay, well, that is a little over the top. Uh, these folks are very angry. When I say that the energy seems to be out of it, um, the comments I hear from senators as I'm watching cable news and the uh, you know C-SPAN, I know that you never stop watching C-SPAN, uh, the, the, the comments coming out of Washington from the senators, the people who would actually make a decision about kicking crews out of the Senate, which they can do. Uh, I get, I've gotten this question quite often over the last two weeks of what does it take uh, to boot a senator uh, in Washington? It takes a two-thirds vote, right? So that means they would need 17 senators to join with the Democrats to uh, expel Cruz from the Senate, which is also the number it takes to um, remove a president uh, under the impeachment process. Uh, so if I was Cruz, as we said here on the show, I think last week, I'd watch that very closely, you know, whether yeah. whipping members, you know, whether Mitch McConnell is whip, whipping the membership on the Republican side to try to punish President Trump somehow. I was uh, fascinated by this discussion, Jeremy, 
the process for removing the president is uh, a two-thirds vote uh, of the Senate. Uh, but the vote to ensure that someone can't run for federal office again is a simple majority. And there was some discussion among um, constitutional scholars about whether or not that, that, you know, the removal vote has to happen before the other one. Oh, yeah. So, right. So it may be that the Senate could vote to ensure that the president can't run for office again, which I think is where Mitch McConnell, the the Republican leader, may be going with all of this. I mean, I think that would be uh, his ultimate goal in trying to excise that from the Republican Party, at least for right now. So the, the Republicans don't have to be um, answering questions more about Trump and whether he's going to run for president again and would they support him again. Meantime, he's now on the outside, uh, you know, and will be uh, no doubt in some fashion, you know, criticizing Republicans and criticizing Democrats. And there's even been chatter about whether the president would start his own third party. Uh, the Patriot Party is what it would be called, apparently, according to some of the reports. And I saw Lou Dobbs on Fox Business Channel was saying that sounded pretty good to him. And then I saw some conservative Republican uh, radio talk show hosts like Mark Davis in uh, Dallas, for example, say, no, no, this is exactly how to have Democrats in charge of everything forever. If you have the Republican Party basically split in two into the GOP and the uh, Patriot Party. Um, but Senator Cruz, if you're him, you have to be watching all this very closely uh, because uh, the Senate, uh, look, he doesn't have any friends there no. at this moment. But the way the Senate works is to be slow and deliberate. And I would say it this way. If they had a vote last week or the week before to kick Cruz out of the Senate, I'll bet you they would have done it. Well, that's, and that's not how they work, right? It, no. If it ever came up at all, it would be a month from now or two months from now when everybody's had a chance to cool down. Well, I, I'm thinking, look, Ted Cruz has almost nothing to worry about here. He's not going to get expelled from the U.S. Senate. And the reason I say that confidently is that, you know, since the Civil War, uh, if we calculate all the numbers together, you know, break out the calculator, start, you know, you know, adding up all the people who have been, you know, removed from the U.S. Senate, you get a whopping zero. Okay. Nobody has ever been expelled from uh, the U.S. Senate since, you know, post-Reconstruction. <laughs> so the, the chances that they could pull this off, there have been some, you know, you know, cases where they've tried to expel and people have either quit or the expulsion didn't work. They didn't get the votes. You know, things like that have happened. You know, there was one guy in 1905 who actually died, you know, during the expulsion hearing. So maybe he could have been the one. But so I think from uh, a logistical standpoint, uh, the U.S. Senate is not apt to try to expel, you know, Ted Cruz uh, or any member because the question then is like, what will constitute expulsion for others? You know, it's like one of the more famous ones. You know, you have to go back to the '90s. You know, with Bob Packwood. You know, anybody remembers him? He was the uh, the Oregon, you know, U.S. senator who got into lots of trouble with some. You know, sexual harassment and sexual misconduct, uh, and he ended up quitting. You know, just as they were starting to get ready for the expulsion, uh, and so he could have been, but it's it's just rare that we even get to this point. I don't think Cruz has a lot to be worried about. That you know, Schumer and McConnell are going to say, "Okay, let's get this let's get this guy out of here." 
All right, so maybe he doesn't have to worry about that internally. Externally, he has the Lincoln Project now coming after him. You know about these guys. They're the uh, Republicans. Uh, some are Republicans. Some say they're former Republicans, including uh, Steve Schmidt, right? He, he worked for McCain and said that he is out of the Republican Party. He's done Rick Wilson with the Lincoln Project, uh, was on WFAA's podcast. It's called Yolitics. You ever listen to this? It's with uh, Jason Whiteley and Jason Wheeler. It's okay. Yolitics. It's okay. I mean, Jeremy, it, it's not this podcast. Of course not. <laughs> right, right. But, but they did have Rick Wilson on, and he told the two Jasons, Whiteley and Wheeler, uh, that uh, Cruz should not get a pass for his role in the riots. Ted is just one of the, the members of the Sedition Caucus from, uh, the, from, from the week of the 6th where they chose to continue to inflame a violent conspiracy theory uh, and a violent group of conspirators who believed uh, the line of complete BS that Donald Trump had lost the election. Ricky. So we, we hold them responsible for helping to inflame that language, perpetuate that conspiracy theory, inflame that crowd. Um, they, they, you know, Donald Trump may have struck the match, but they poured gas all over the countryside. I should say that Wilson uses some colorful language, and he does make the point uh, that Cruz is only pretending to be so loyal to the Constitution and all that it stands for. You know, Ted Cruz, who pretends to be a constitutional conservative, who pretends to be someone who is guided by the founding documents of this country, uh, quite clearly was not. He was clearly a shallow, crass, grotesque political opportunist trying to grab onto the Trump train in its last moments of, of life in Washington and to position himself for a future, uh, you know, political, you know, ascension to the White House. Um, look, and we all know Ted Cruz is sort of a political force of nature. He is what he is. You either hate him or you hate him. Um, and, and and he is a guy who who went so far over the edge, not just to appease Donald Trump and Trump's base, but because he felt like Josh Hawley had gotten out ahead of him on it. So what are they actually going to do, Jeremy? He's not up for re-election, and if he was going to be running for president, that wouldn't be until 2024. So they did ask him this question. They they said, okay, Rick, you guys are known for um, you know putting out Twitter ads and digital videos and running television ads against people, but you can't do any of that when nobody's Run, you know, when somebody's not running for re-election or for anything else. So what about that? We fight what we call full-spectrum warfare all the time. Hmm. So we do media, we do ads, but often those things are sort of the iceberg, the tip of the iceberg you see floating outside the water. And a lot of the stuff we're doing underneath the water is is in some ways more consequential. Look, we don't, we don't look at Ted Cruz as an electoral challenge we have to face right away. We know Ted Cruz is, is driven by this demonic level of ambition. He wants to be president. He is desperate to finally be the cool kid and have and, and be the president. And so we know that that's going to drive all his behavior. Now, to get there, he has to do two things. He has to really, really, really keep the Trump base and hopefully win them over. Uh, because remember, there's nothing Trump voters hate more than a Republican who ever said a bad word about Donald Trump. Mm. And Cruz is OK mm. with them. But I can promise you he's going to try to make up all that ground for the stuff he said about Trump in 16, which is one of the few times I think Ted Cruz ever spoke from the heart. And he really lashed out in 2016. He took the stick to him. And, and, and rightly so. 
Listen, if you said, hey, your wife is ugly and your dad killed JFK to me, you'd be eating out of a straw for six months. Okay, so there's a lot of trash talk there, but I don't know that they really have any impact on Cruz. I think he hunkers down and keeps his eye on whatever it is he wants to do next. One of the things that uh, is so liberating for a U.S. senator is they get a six-year term. And in the time that they run for one thing and get bloodied up about, you know, whatever they were running for, either their reelection effort or with Cruz running for president, there is a long time between those battles and then the next battle they're going to wage at the ballot box. Um, And I don't know that whatever the Lincoln Project does, that that's going to, you know, hobble Cruz going forward. But there is a lot of talk, Jeremy, about whether or not this keeps Cruz from doing what we all know. And Wilson's right about this. What we all know that Cruz wants to do, which is run for president again. And I think that his prospects seemed brighter before January 6th. Uh, and now the water is muddy. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, the arc of it, right? You know, so, you know, the, his embracing of Trump during the 2018 uh, reelection campaign seemed to kind of help elevate him back up, right? You know, it's like, it seemed like he was starting to build momentum as, you know, that, that wing of the party that could be separate from, you know, Trump, but also supportive of Trump, right? And so it felt like he was kind of carving out a different kind of niche. But what happened since, you know, November 3rd is that, you know, Cruz continued to try to do that, but now it feels like it's become toxic for him. You know, it's like, you know, now that maybe he went just one step too far. You know, he probably didn't have to say anything on the Senate floor. Uh, He could have left it up to Josh Hawley and he would still have had the cred, you know, for all the work he had been doing and supporting a Trump. Remember he volunteered to, to defend Trump, you know, at the Supreme Court, you know, he was doing all kinds of stuff that was, you know, to, you know, gain favor with the Trump crowd, which would have been fine. But yeah. then he had to take it one step. And I think I think you're right. I think if he hadn't, you know, gone that extra step, he'd be in a much better position. Look, America has a short memory span, mm-hmm. you, know, like, you know, six months from now, you know, and somewhere in Iowa, maybe they've completely forgotten any of this has happened, you know, and we just move on. A year in politics is just a lifetime. We've seen that over and over again. Remember President Beto O'Rourke <laughs> once leading the polls <laughs> and then a year later dropping out of the race, you know, yeah. so a year is a long time to go. So I'm not willing to say, you know, Cruz's, you know, chances of being president are done. Mm-hmm. Give me like six to eight months and see where he is and see if the country has moved on. And now we're just totally focused on energy policies and immigration policies and COVID under control. That's going to do more to dictate, you know, where the presidential field is going to look like. You know, be quick, too. It's like, you know, in about a year from now, we're going to start knowing, you know, who's really going to be, you know, testing the waters and who isn't. And so much can happen um, this time last year. Were we even talking about a pandemic? No. No, right. Um, it, this Remember in June and July of last year, we started making the joke that you remember how the president was impeached and that was this year? Yeah. The people people had moved on so beyond that. I mean, that, that, that had almost no, I would argue, had almost no impact on the election. But by the time November rolled around, it was about you know COVID response. It was about the economy cratering because of COVID. And a whole host of other things. Impeachment would have been the last thing anybody would have been talking about. And, you know, this year he's been impeached again. 
Yeah, I almost don't even remember it because it's already the 22nd. All right. Um, one other thing that Governor Abbott was focused on this week, he did a series of roundtables. He did at least two of them that I saw. Maybe he's doing some more of them coming up. Uh, he's setting the table. You like that play on words? He's setting the table. Roundtables. Mm-hmm. Um, he's talking about some of his legislative priorities. Some of these things are things that were discussed during campaigns and other things not so much. One of the ones that uh, I thought, and we've already covered, ad, and we'll cover it some more, this whole idea of defending police versus defunding the police. Uh, Abbott uh, held a roundtable discussion on law enforcement uh, in Austin, and you attended. That was at uh, the Department of Public Safety Office. Is that right? That's correct. As part of it, he brought up this push for bail reform, which they've been talking about for a long time, Jeremy. Um, Abbott, uh, you know, he's he's made this one of his priorities. I don't know if they're going to get anywhere with it uh, in this legislative session, but here's part of what he had to say. The fact is that Texas has a broken bail system that allows dangerous criminals to go free. The Texas Department of Public Safety trooper Damon Allen was shot and killed during a traffic stop. His accused killer was out on bail when he should have been behind bars. I'm working with the legislature to develop strategies to end the revolving door bail system that we have in Texas. Abbott said there are at least three major things he'd like to see included in any bail reform. Among the ideas include expanding the criteria that judges must consider when setting bail. Another is increasing the qualifications of the judges who are eligible to set bail. Another is making sure that we have a uniform court management system so that judges have the full criminal history of a defendant when setting bail. Judges setting bail must actually look at the system and all of the information in the system before they set that bail that could possibly release a dangerous criminal back on the streets like the killer of Damon Allen. So he's talking about this in a way that is very different from the way others have talked about criminal justice reform and what needs to be done in this arena, Jeremy. What was some of the other discussion like? I was looking at your story and you talked to a few people about this. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, the, coming out of the summer, you know, the, the tumultuous summer, uh, like people were talking about criminal justice reform. And one of the pieces was a bail reform that you know, doesn't require people to come up with cash bail to get out. You know, there are a lot of people who haven't been convicted of a crime yet who are sitting in jails uh, who can't get out simply because they're they're poor, they're broke, they don't have money to get out. And so I asked Governor Abbott about that during that press conference towards the end of it. Uh, and he acknowledged that that problem exists, but made it clear that that is a separate priority from what he's doing. Uh, now, there are people who are advocating for those reforms to reduce the how much bail is keeping people locked up. I mean, a lot of people up, you know, particularly the nonviolent people, uh, the people who are in there who can't get out, that's affecting them in terms of, you know, jobs and taking care of families. And in a lot of cases, you know, the longer you're in jail, the studies show that the more likely you are going to have another run in you know, with the criminal justice system at some point. So you can see all the reasons why people, you know, in the criminal justice reform world are saying, no, 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 we want you to talk about, you know, getting fewer people locked up, you know, uh, and being able to make bail. And Abbott's coming at it as, uh, you know, look, there's holes in the bail system, which he's correct. There are, you know, the, the 
that case of that trooper, you know, is, is seared in my mind because that was in yeah. you know Thanksgiving Day Terrible. in 2017 when that happened, and yeah, it led to this car chase and and in Waller County, you know, where it ended up, you know, just outside of Houston, and so you have this like, yeah, certainly a need to make sure like the judges do know when a defendant is actually much more violent, you know, in their history. And so Abbott certainly has that. But the question is, can you do either one of those types of bail reform without the other? Because uh, you lose the support of the other side when you just go with one of them. But we've seen in the legislature for two consecutive legislative cycles, yeah. they haven't been able to get anything out. So like expect to hear a lot more conversation about this. You know, it's like there's one year where it passed the House and failed in the Senate, another year where it passed the Senate but failed the House. And so there's a way to kind of get to this thing. There's a lot of everybody's talking somewhat of the same language, but we're just not there yet. All right. Well, we'll keep uh, tabs on that as the legislative session uh, unfolds in front of our eyes. I wanted to answer one listener question real quick. People asked, is it because of the pandemic that the session is moving so slowly? I don't see a lot of things happening. No. The answer is no. Um, in the first two months of a legislative session, it is typical that the legislators don't do a whole lot in the way of policy. You wouldn't even see legislative hearings happening yet or anything like that. They don't even have committee assignments yet in the Texas House. They do have them uh, in the Texas Senate. And the only thing that they've done so far, Jeremy, substantively, is they put their rules together for how they're going to operate during the pandemic. And that's just sort of, you know, the functions of government, how the, the logistics of how they're going to do it. But, but really, substantively, the only thing they've done so far is put forward a, a budget proposal. The budget is the most important work product of the legislature. It is a Herculean effort, as we've talked about here many times. It's a quarter trillion dollar document. Think about how big our state is. It's a quarter trillion dollar spending plan that is laid out over a 24-month horizon because they do the budget every two years. The House and Senate put forward budget proposals that were strikingly similar, which is not the norm. Usually it's the Senate has one idea for how they want to do the budget and the house version will be very different. These are very close together. Um, I think part of that is probably by design because they are thinking, and this is probably at the urging of the governor in the background, they're thinking that the legislative session is going to still be more truncated than normal because of the pandemic. We already had, as we mentioned uh, here on the show previously, sort of a mini outbreak of COVID at the Capitol when we had one legislator uh, from the Beaumont area uh, who did test positive for COVID after having been on the Texas House floor for a couple of days with other House members. So that's already interrupting their flow of work. Um, but usually, unless the governor gives them the green light to go ahead and start working on something through what they call emergency items, which those aren't really emergencies. It's a it's an exercise of power. It's when the governor just basically says, these are the topics you can go ahead and start debating and passing bills about in that first uh, 60 days of the legislative session. Otherwise, they basically just do a lot of, you know, socializing and hanging out and getting to know each other the first couple of uh, months, which is, it's important, but it's not the substantive policy work that they'll get to later in the session. And hopefully, uh, you know, by uh, February, by March, uh, you know, into April, the vaccine uh, distribution will be more even. And certainly we can get to something maybe uh, that you could call herd immunity in the Texas Capitol. Um, you know, by that point in the legislative session, they can start to really do things. Uh, one other thing here I wanted to mention, uh, it's all going to shot. Do you follow me? Well, uh, Willie Nelson, 
I'm teeing you up here, Jeremy. Willie Nelson <laughs> got the vaccination. How old is Willie Nelson at this point? 87. The, 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 you know, we mean, can all first in line for the vaccine. Yeah, well, well it, 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 it's a good and a bad story, right? You know, it's like in that, you know, one, you know, the fact that, you know, Willie Nelson drove 40 miles to get his shot by himself uh, kind of scares me <laughs> as an 87-year-old <laughs> on the road. Uh, and then he had to drive home. So <laughs> there's a lot of driving for 87-year-old Willie Nelson, but kudos to him for doing yeah. it. You know, as he said in one of his more recent songs, like he didn't want to be the last man standing, but but maybe he does. And so, like, there's now new hope that Willie Nelson's last concert was not during the Houston Rodeo. You know, if everybody remembers when the pandemic there. hit, he, that was his last show. Oh, know? was it? Yeah, it's like you he had anything up. after that. No, I was had, thinking about it this morning. I saw, I you know, saw this news about how he got the vaccination, and as I said just a minute ago, he should have been first in line for the vaccination. Protect Willie. It yeah, should be like Willie Nelson, Dolly Parton. Um, thinking of other, they don't have to be music legends, but th- those two popped to mind immediately. Get yeah. them the vaccine. Uh, Betty White, get her the vaccine. You know, people like that. Um, but I saw Willie Nelson in concert at that show. I didn't realize that was his last show, uh, you know, since the pandemic. Um, but the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo uh, was not shut down yet, but there were starting to be, uh, I think around that time, some rumors that maybe they'd have to shut this down. I saw Willie Nelson. He had a very, strong showing i had heard from some friends who saw him um a few months before that um and they said that there were some nights when he because he has respiratory issues to begin with of course he may have smoked something over the years um and and they said there were there were certain evenings uh who is it is, is it his son is uh luke yeah lucas nelson. Right? lucas nelson a lot of times he would have to sort of pick up the slack during the shows and play a lot of the songs and sing a lot of the songs when his dad wouldn't be able to. But man, when I saw him at the Houston livestock show and rodeo, he was fantastic, strong voice throughout. And um, yeah, hopefully we'll get to see Willie in concert again. Thankfully the man has gotten his shot. All right. And and that would be, that would be the way to end the pandemic, right? You know, when the pandemic is declared dead, the first thing that should happen in Texas is that we have Willie Nelson and George Strait and all these guys in a concert, just, uh, you know, defiantly, you know, you know, sing songs like, you know, I don't want to be the last man standing, but maybe I do. (laughs) I love it. All right. That's enough show, uh, for us. Uh, we of course, uh, used to do this show in person like Willie was playing in person, but now we've, we've taken it online. You know, he, has he done any virtual concerts, um, you know, playing on, you know, YouTube or whatever, or Facebook live or anything like that. I haven't seen that. I think he did. He did play a song during that Beto O'Rourke thing he did, you know? And so like, he certainly has played some stuff on some of these live streams, but it's not like a concert type thing that, you know, would even hit the spot for real. (laughs) I saw where Lyle Lovett did that uh, with John Hyatt uh, because they had been uh, touring together. And um, then they did uh, some Facebook live stuff. That was pretty cool. That was, I I like those where they'll sit and tell the stories about their songs and then, you know, play the music and um, it's it's some substitute, but you're right. It's not the same as being a person for one of these shows. Yeah. Whiskey river on a, uh, you know, live stream is not the same as being in the show. <laughs> not at all. And you certainly don't get um, what they call the contact high. All right. Now the plugs. If you enjoy the show, 
and you know that you do, you should be a subscriber on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, however you listen to your favorite podcast. Jeremy's work appears at HoustonChronicle.com each and every day, it seems. He, he never has a break. And for up-to-the-minute intelligence on what's happening in your state government, especially important during the legislative session, go to QuorumReport.com, click subscriptions, and we will get you signed up. We will see you next week. Mm-hmm.